Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we're going to talk about North Korea. This week, President Trump flew all the way to Vietnam to have a long-anticipated summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. The Americans want North Korea to dismantle its nuclear program. The North Koreans want there to be an end to the American-led regime of trade and economic sanctions. But on February 28th, those summit talks collapsed without a deal. So in this episode, we're going to talk about why getting a deal with North Korea on its nuclear program is just so hard. To do so, we're going to replay an interview we did with Marcus Noland in November of 2017. Marcus is the executive vice president, director of studies, and a colleague of mine at the Peterson Institute. At the time of our interview, he had just published a book on this issue of North Korea and economic sanctions. So before we get to the story of how we actually got here today, and maybe to give us a flavor of this regime, could you talk a little bit about what it's like to be an economist working on North Korea? Well, working on North Korea is akin to writing fiction because little of what you say can actually be falsified. To give you an example, in North Korea, basic national accounts, even international trade statistics are considered national secrets and not published. The economy has some peculiar characteristics, including reliance on unconventional and even illicit and illegal ways of earning revenue, such as engaging in smuggling, counterfeiting, and nowadays cybercrime. When people ask me where I get the data I use, I tell them I just make it up. I mean, I do a little better than that. Uh, For example, in the case of trade statistics, we can use something called mirror statistics to compile uh, what we think North Korea is trading. But even that's hazardous. Every year, somebody in some statistical agency around the world gets North and South Korea confused. And the volume of North Korean trade is so small relative to South Korea that those recording errors absolutely swamp the actual data. Another approach that I've been involved in is to use survey data. I've been involved in two large-scale surveys of North Korean refugees. People tend to look askance of refugee surveys, but for the purposes I'm looking at, which is essentially asking the refugees, how did you earn your money and how did you spend it? I think these refugee surveys can actually be quite revealing about the actual workings of the North Korean economy. I've also been involved in formal surveys of Chinese enterprises operating in North Korea, as well as South Korean firms operating in North Korea. And again, we glean a lot about the actual workings of the North Korean economy by talking to these participants. In short, doing economics on North Korea in many ways is as much art as it is science. Okay, so let's step back. How did we get here? How did North Korea come to be so closed, so secretive, so shut off? Well, North Korea, or formerly the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, was established in 1948 in the wake of the Second World War. It was the zone of Soviet military occupation when Korea, which had been colonized by the Japanese, was liberated. And it inherited its institutions from Stalin-era Soviet Union. Internally, it was notable only to the degree that markets were repressed. 
Externally, it was concerned about domination by foreign powers. So, for example, it never joined the Council of Mutual Economic Assistance, the kind of uh, club of uh, socialist countries. And indeed, it deliberately timed its central plans to frustrate linkage uh, with those other socialist states. And what developed was the closest thing we've ever seen to real autarky. The North Koreans, for example, used to produce uh, radios and televisions that had new tuners. Uh, They were pre-tuned to a specific frequency. You just flipped on the uh, power switch and you got state propaganda. Needless to say, there's not a lot of demand for those devices on the world market. This strategy of emphasizing self-determination was called juche, or which is normally translated as self-reliance. But for all the protestations of self-reliance, North Korea has always been dependent on external patrons. First, it was the Soviet Union, later China, uh, more recently South Korea, and a more diversified set of sources. What happened in the 1980s with changes that occurred when the, the Soviet Union fell? How did that impact North Korea? Well, the Soviets had been supplying the North Koreans with a lot of aid, uh, most importantly oil, which was used not only for transportation, but importantly as a feedstock for chemical fertilizers. And this turns out to be of critical importance in the 1990s. But by the mid-1980s, the Soviets were getting fed up, and they started to demand that the North Koreans begin repaying those debts, and they started cutting them off. And sometime in the mid to late 80s, it appears that uh, net resource transfers turned negative. Then in 1989, uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the dissolution of the Eastern Bloc, that amounted to a tremendous macroeconomic shock to the North Korean economy. How did the government in North Korea respond? Well, the short answer is it didn't. And in this context, comparison with the Vietnamese could be instructive. The Vietnamese were facing the same set of incentives. The Soviets were also cutting them off in terms of aid. But instead of just standing pat, uh, the Vietnamese initiated a reform process of doi moi. They expanded their exports and so on. Uh, For reasons that we may never know until the regime falls and somebody gets access to the archives, the North Korean leadership just didn't seem to grasp what was going on around them and stood still. So it sounds like they're in autarky, essentially, at that period on, now cut off from the Soviet Union. So how does that work out for them? It was an absolute disaster. They had this national ideology of juche or self-reliance. And for example, they pursued an understandable goal of national food security through what we as economists would consider an irrational policy of self-sufficiency. It was irrational because North Korea is largely mountainous, and because of its latitude and because it gets these cold winds coming off uh, Siberia, it has a generally cold climate, very limited opportunities for double cropping. So in order to achieve self-sufficiency, given those inauspicious conditions, the North Koreans really had to push yields to the absolute maximum. And they developed an agricultural system that was highly dependent on industrial inputs. Tremendous applications of fertilizer and other agricultural chemicals, reliance on electrically powered irrigation that had been installed by Soviet engineers and so on. So when they got hit with that macroeconomic shock and when the oil supply started to dwindle, the industrial economy pulled the agricultural economy down with it. 
And as agricultural yields begin to fall, the North Koreans responded by putting more and more marginal land into production. They literally started cutting trees off the hillside. That then contributed to river silting, silting of canals and reservoirs, and exacerbated the normal seasonal pattern of flooding that occurs on the Korean peninsula. The regime initiated something called a let's eat two meals a day campaign, and finally, in 1994, approached first Japan, then South Korea, and eventually the United Nations seeking food aid. The reason I mentioned the floods is the floods played an important political role. So the, the country was hit by big floods in 95 and 96, and it allowed North Koreans, as well as some of their people sympathetic to them uh, in outside countries, to portray what was going on as a natural disaster. But in fact, it was the culmination of 50 years of economic mismanagement. The famine actually began before the floods. And the famine ultimately took, we estimate, 600,000 to a million people's lives, or uh, roughly 3 to 5% of the population. It was the worst peacetime famine in a industrial or semi-industrial country in the 20th century. How did the famine affect North Korea's relationship with the outside world? Well, the famine had profound effects both internally and externally, and actually the internal effects may even be greater. So what happened was, to, to be blunt, if you played by the rules, you died. To access food, small-scale social units, families, small military units, party offices, municipal government offices, all began operating in entrepreneurial fashion, oftentimes engaged in what was technically illegal behavior to access food. So the marketization in the North Korean economy that we've observed over the last 25 years is fundamentally a product of state failure. It's not the product of any top-down reform process, and as a consequence, the state has always been ambivalent about it. Now, in terms of the external relations, one of the aspects of this expansion of entrepreneurial activity was the expansion of non-regulated trade with China. Initially, it was barter trade to obtain grain. Later, it monetized and it spread from grain to a broader array of consumer goods. Aid was also very important. At its peak, aid in principle fed one-third of the population. But the reason the aid was really important was, remember, markets were illegal. Now you have aid coming in, which, is in the, which in the context of a famine has astronomical value. But you can only appropriate those rents if there are markets in which to sell the aid. So now you have parts of the elite who have an interest in seeing markets develop because that's how they can get rich. So the famine had absolutely profound effects both on North Korea's internal organization and institutions as well as its external relations with the rest of the world. Okay, and alongside all of this, at some point, North Korea starts trying really hard to develop its nuclear capacity. The founder of North Korea, the founding leader of North Korea, and the grandfather of the current leader, Kim Jong-un, was a man named Kim Il-sung. Kim Il-sung had been a low-level anti-Japanese guerrilla fighter sort of employed by the Red Army during the Second World War. And as someone fighting against the Japanese, he was tremendously impressed by the American bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
he had been he'd spent his whole life fighting against Japanese colonialism and and along come these Americans with these atomic weapons and they bring Imperial Japan to its knees so he was very impressed and there was a long interest in developing nuclear weaponry they had a certain amount of non-military support for developing uh, experimental research reactors and so on from both the Soviets and a bit from the Chinese uh, and they started to develop nuclear weapons and a crisis was averted in 1994 through a bilateral deal between the United States and North Korea called the Agreed Framework. That deal held for about a decade until a crisis broke in 2002 with the revelation of a second secret nuclear program. And just to be clear, the crisis is because the Americans do not want the North Koreans to have nuclear capability. The Americans don't want it. The South Koreans don't want it. The Japanese don't want it. The Russians actually don't want it. Even the Chinese probably don't really want it either. Uh, there's nobody except the North Koreans who think that North Korea having nuclear weapons is a really good idea. Sorry, I interrupted you. Back to 2002. Well, it's simply in 2002, there was a crisis. There was an agreement in principle to basically freeze the North Korean nuclear program in 2005. The North Koreans defected from that agreement. And essentially, we spent the last 12 years trying to get back to the 2005 ante. So in theory, the fact that North Korea wasn't completely closed off in terms of its trade with the rest of the world, it was trading during this period with China, with South Korea, meant it gave some other countries some leverage that it could potentially use. So how did that work out? Sanctions to North Korea face a variety of problems in practice. One set of problems has to do with multilateral coordination. North Korea has been very skilled at playing various countries off against each other, uh, and it's hard to, to sort of herd all the cats in the same direction. Second problem is particularly acute in democratic societies. It's a problem of, of the credibility of commitments, that you can have a change in government, and while one government committed to a certain policy or course of action, an successive government may, may want to undo this. And it's made worse in the case of North Korea. The same sort of incentive problems bedevil engagement. You have problems of coordination across countries, as well as problems of the credibility of commitments, especially when it has to do with kind of lumpy things like shutting down a nuclear program. So who goes first? Do you pay them up front and then have them refuse, uh, which is the accusation that has been made in the past about North Korean behavior? Or do somehow you try to persuade them that they really need to dismantle their nuclear program and we will pay you, we really mean it? So both sanctions and inducements have these basic problems of coordination and credibility. So you mentioned herding cats. So tell us about the various players on the external side that were trying to sanction North Korea and the difficulties that came in there. Well, the problem for the United States is that North Korea has been under pretty heavy bilateral sanctions since the outbreak of the Korean War in the early 1950s. So the U.S. didn't have much to sanction itself. And so it was really trying to get North Korea's major trade partners, which at the time were China, South Korea, and Japan to sanction. It wasn't that much of a problem in the case of Japanese. They had a narrow agenda having to do with Japanese citizens that had been abducted by North Korea. But in general, the Japanese were not adverse to sanctioning North Korea. China and South Korea were a different matter, however. China, for all sorts of reasons, sees the continuation of the North Korean regime as in its geopolitical interests and has been reluctant to impose sanctions. 
South Korea, the issue of sanctions is controversial domestically. And depending on whether you had a conservative or so-called progressive government, uh, you would either get a government that was pretty oriented towards sanctioning North Korea or a government that almost wanted to engage unconditionally. And the problem for the United States was, to use another metaphor, every time we tried to push North Korea up against the wall and give them a simple choice, either give up your nuclear weapons and integrate yourself into the global community in a prosperous and respectable manner, or retain your nuclear weapons and be cold, hungry, and in the dark, China, and at times South Korea, would move the wall backwards. So we could never really put them up against the wall and force that choice. So, Mark, if these trade sanctions were so difficult for the Americans to apply, did they experiment with other types of sanctions instead? Because we had already sanctioned most of North Korea's goods trade, starting in 2005, we really shifted towards financial sanctions. The basic idea is that if a bank or financial institution in some other country was dealing with North Koreans involved in the nuclear missile programs, we would go after them, labeling them a money laundering concern. At that point, the bank has a simple choice. Maybe it's doing a billion dollars worth of business in the United States and $10 million worth of business in North Korea. So commercial logic just dictates that you drop the North Koreans and preserve the more important commercial interests in the United States. The financial sanctions act differently because what you're doing is you are it's, – it's sort of the same logic that the bank has a greater stake in its relationship with the United States than North Korea. The finance ministry or the central bank has a greater rela- stake in its relationship with the U.S. Treasury or the Fed than it does with the North Korean counterparts. So again, they're liable to go along with the sanctions because they have a more important agenda with the United States. And, and it's, it's not worth uh, disrupting relations with the United States on more important financial issues over the North Koreans. So increasingly, uh, our sanctions are targeted towards the financial sector, which essentially leveraged the size and depth of U.S. financial markets to get other players around the world to do what we want them to do. Okay, so we've got trade sanctions, financial sanctions. Who are these aimed at? Was it powerful North Koreans? Was it more general? Who who are they trying to squeeze? Well, in the case of the UN sanctions, the up until recently, the bulk of the UN sanctions were what I would describe defensive in nature. They were sanctions explicitly aimed at disrupting North Korean nuclear programs, and I think they're completely justified. Beyond that, there was concern that the imposition of sanctions might hurt the average North Korean, and they may be poor people, they have no real uh, voice or or ability to hold their regime accountable. So there was a movement towards so-called targeted sanctions that would be aimed at the elite. And so, for example, we had sanctions that prevented the exportation of luxury goods uh, to North Korea. But the fact of the matter is, those sanctions seem to have very little effect. And in the face of North Korean intransigence uh, in the nuclear and missile fields, more recent UN sanctions have become much broader. So now we're sanctioning North Korean exports of minerals. We're sanctioning North Korean exports of textiles and apparel, which will clearly hurt average North Koreans who uh, work in those industries. The basic problem is, again, as in the famine period, is the North Korean government is fundamentally unaccountable to its citizenry. So sanctions during that period don't seem to be working for a number of different reasons that you've explained to us. But it's also partly North Korea's 
trade relationship is changing fundamentally during that period. So now we're talking about the 2000s into the more recent period. So can you explain to us what's going on there? North Korea's natural trade partner is South Korea, followed by Japan and China, and then the United States, you know, trailing distantly. But what happened was China emerged as the predominant trade partner, uh, basically because of concerns in South Korea about trade with North Korea and and the sort of politics of that. Then in 2010, uh, in response to some military provocations, the South Koreans imposed sanctions. So South Korean trade with North Korea basically dropped to zero. And in that situation, trade with China began to take up an ever larger share. That was reinforced by the fact that North Korea largely exports to China natural resource products. So in the context of the global commodity boom, with the prices of those commodities rising, uh, North Korea's trade with China grew until the point today where China accounts for 90% or more of recorded trade. Now, that trade has actually been going down in the last couple of years, a product of slowing Chinese growth, a decline in commodity prices, and possibly even the impact of sanctions. Uh, But China still remains really the only game in town, accounting for 90% of North Korea's trade. Can I just probe a bit more about what exactly is crossing between these two countries? Is it, you know, things like coal? North Korea exports to China primarily mineral products. That's mainly coal, but also a wide range of other types of mineral, iron ore, zinc, mangosite, lead, copper, gold, rare earths, all kinds of things. They're really basic products, essentially. Yes. I mean, North Korea is essentially a 20th century hunter-gatherer society. It digs things out of the ground, and it, it gathers a few other natural resource products like ginseng or some marine products, and it sells to China. In return, it gets oil, grain, and consumer goods. More recently, there has been growth of some manufactured exports that are basically through Chinese-invested Uh, factories, mainly very, very, very bottom-end garments, mostly T-shirts. Those things are now under sanction. So it's not clear how much longer you're going to see this kind of trade in minerals as well as the trade in uh, textiles and apparel. Okay, Mark, let's turn to what I'm about to ask, which is the really hard question, but let's put it out there. So what sort of approach to North Korea might work? What would a deal with North Korea ultimately look like? Well, North Korea regards possession of nuclear weapons and missile delivery systems as absolutely essential to the political survival of the regime. And it's not clear that really there's any price that they would accept uh, for the elimination of those programs. If there was to be a deal it would probably be in the context of a peace treaty formally ending the Korean War. See, there's never been a Korean peace treaty. It's still just an armistice. You could kind of imagine a package which would essentially amount to a kind of rigorous freeze. What uh, the parties would do would be to recognize the statements that the North and South Korean governments have made on multiple occasions of their commitment to a nuclear-free Korean peninsula. And that commitment to a nuclear-free Korean peninsula would establish the end state. 
And in the medium run, North Korea will continue to possess some kind of nuclear capability. But North Korea will agree to no new development, no new production, no new testing, and most critically from the standpoint of the United States and other countries, no proliferation beyond the Korean Peninsula. And then during this medium-run period, the North and South Koreans work together to establish a more cordial relations, a kind of a reasonable basis for national reconciliation and potentially a national unification. Others, such as the United States, China, perhaps Russia, perhaps the European Union, provide North Korea with various sorts of security guarantees and financial assistance, getting them into the World Bank, and so on. It's a second best solution. It's not optimal, but it's something that we could probably live with. What do you think that North Korea is losing by continuing along this path of near autarky? The tragedy of North Korea is that North Korea is a chronically food insecure country in the middle of the world's most dynamic economic neighborhood. If North Korea could open up, if it could have foreign investment. See, North Koreans, there's a certain latent potential in the economy, but the, they lack the neural connections to the outside world to turn that latent potential into product the world actually wants to buy. So if you could get foreign direct investment into North Korea, if you could establish North Korea as part of global supply chain networks, the economy could potentially just take off. And one would observe an enormous improvement in standards of living and reduction in poverty. That's the real tragedy of the country, that it has a political system that allows it to continue decade after decade to pursue grotesquely suboptimal policies. And every single day that goes by, North Korea falls further and further behind its neighbors. And that's really the tragedy of North Korea. Pretty depressing stuff. And I think that is all from Trade Talks. A special, special thanks to Marcus Noland at the Peterson Institute um, and also his co-author, Steph Haggard at the University of California, San Diego, uh, for sharing all of your insights on North Korea. If you have specific feedback or ideas for future episodes, then please do get in touch. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bowne. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because for the foreseeable future, it looks like there will continue to be two Koreas and not one. <laughs>